Good morning. We're looking through, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and as we do so, we're surprised by the joy we find there. Paul is writing from prison, and he touches on the theme of joy throughout the letter, and we're going to learn a couple things about joy this morning. Um, in the third chapter, as we are in the middle of the third chapter, we're going to learn about what erodes joy, the kind of influences that cause it to dissipate. And we'll also, we'll also be told what to do in order to restore joy when it is being eroded. Look what it says in Philippians 3.17. We'll read through 4.7. It's in your worship folder. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul starts, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You remember the line out of, I think it's young Frankenstein, walk this way. And then he, he does this and okay, I'll walk this way. Paul basically does the same thing, walks this way. But what he's doing, he says, do the things that I do. If you want to move forward in your spiritual life, observe what I do and copy me. Think what I think. Do what I do. Act like I act, which might seem kind of arrogant. Um, but the fact is that he is running the same race they are running, and there are enemies who are trying to force them off the track. When Paul says, walk the way I walk, it's over against those who walk in a different way. And they, the Philippians are being confused because it seems two different types of spiritual experiences. And there's some confusion. So Paul says, if you want to get to where you want to go, follow me, because there's others that you should not follow. And look what he says, for many 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So here's a question. Who are the enemies of the cross of Christ? What are they like? How can we pick them out? Are they secular? Are they sacred? Are they religious people or irreligious people? Well, good for us. Paul talks about them. Let's see what he says. Brother, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on evil things. When you look at individuals who are trying to interpret what's happening here, most often the enemies of the cross of Christ are identified as immoral people, people who don't do the right thing, who do the wrong thing. They're the secular people, the people who um, sin in the ways that we determined is not a good way to live. And so that must be what he's pointing out, people who do bad things, bad people. But it's interesting, this, the idea of individuals glorying in their shame and setting their minds on earthly things. Paul talks about these kind of things elsewhere. I'm going to read a couple of passages and, and not in your worshipful, just listen. So this is, it will give us some insight into who he's talking about. So as I read these passages, again, they're not long, but try to put a picture together because when he says enemies of the cross of Christ, we might have one thing, but the proper translation of a verse in the Bible is not what we think, but what Paul was thinking, right? So if we can find other places where Paul talks about, we will know the kind of things he wants us to look out for, okay? From Hosea, it talks about people whose glory is in their shame. Let me read it. There is no faithfulness, Hosea writes, and he's a prophet, or, or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So what he looks around and he says the people are uh, morally flatlining. There's just not much happening spiritually, and he's going to go on. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. It's talking about people who are immoral, and and but then it goes on. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention. And now he's going to level a finger, and he's going to point out, where he sees the problem. Now, everywhere people are not acting well, and he points that out, but now he points a finger, and he's going to identify who he perceives to be the issue. And this is what he says. For with you is my contention, O priest. He's not talking about the people in general but the spiritual leaders in particular, not the sheep, the shepherds. And he goes on. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge 
because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me, and I, ch- I will change their glory into shame. So who Hosea points out, he doesn't fault the people. They don't have the correct information. Why? Because the people tasked to bring correct information are not doing so. The people perish for lack of knowledge, but is the lack of knowledge the people's fault? It's the priest's fault and the, and the prophet's fault. They change their glory into shame. So he's talking about religious leaders in particular. Okay. You think, uh, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if the same thing in Philippians. If he's, if his issue is a leadership issue, not a people issue. Goes on. Minds set on earthly things. We find that elsewhere in Colossians. It says, God made alive together with him, forgiven, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Cancel the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities. The cross of Christ exists as the place where the new covenant overrides the old covenant. That's what is indicated in this text relative to what happened at the cross. What happened at the cross? Jesus died, right? We know that Jesus died, but why? Why? And when Paul describes why Jesus died, in his death, the old covenant is rescinded and the new covenant supplants it. It's the one decree ends up being set aside. Another decree ends up being honored. Remember what Jesus said, and again, we think of it, on the night before he died, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And a new covenant replaces an old one. What happened at the cross then? The new covenant was inaugurated, and the old covenant is taken away. That's what happened at the cross. So it's interesting. These individuals aren't enemies of Christ, are they? They're enemies of the cross of Christ. You can honor Jesus but dishonor the cross. Is that possible? Is it possible to honor Jesus, but dishonor the cross? The cross exists to put a new covenant in place and take an old covenant away. Is it possible to worship Jesus, but see Jesus as giving us another chance to to be accepted by doing the ten things we're supposed to do? Is that possible? To worship Jesus and thinks he gives us another shot to do the ten things to get accepted? Is that possible? Does it happen? Does it happen? I think it happens everywhere. I think it happens everywhere. What happened at the cross? Jesus died. Why? Well, because he had to. Because we're bad and God hates us. That's not what happened at the cross. What happened at the cross is one rule of law was taken away and another was added to it. The old covenant replaces the new. To be an enemy of the cross of Christ might be to shine the light on Jesus, but shine the light away from the new covenant. I've asked this question, and again, not just because we talk about it here, but growing up, I have an answer for me. And again, I'm gonna, I am gonna, I'm gonna ask a response here, but I'm, I'm kind of interested. 
How many of you growing up, and again, I'm not doing this to lob grenades. I really am not. I'm not doing this to point a finger. I just want to establish something. How many of you growing up received or heard with enough detail that there's a new covenant and an old covenant, that they're different. How many of you heard enough teaching on that to be kind of clear about what the new covenant is and how it differs from the old? I Hold your hand up. <laughs> Could you repeat the question? <laughs> Interestingly, that is my experience, that we haven't heard about it. And would you agree with me that if Jesus comes and puts the new covenant in place and we worship Jesus and we have no clear idea about what the new covenant is, that is unacceptable. And there is loud crying about how unacceptable it is. Amen. Amen. That's right. Yeah. You see, you see his hand go up right there. Um, we can worship Jesus but not know what Jesus did at the cross. Isn't that interesting? And we cannot understand what Jesus does at the cross if we don't understand the new covenant. Would you agree with me? I'm going to say that again. We cannot understand what Jesus did at the cross if we do not understand the difference between the new covenant and the old. Not possible. This is the new covenant. That's what he came to do. Um, he talks about, goes on, therefore, and here's what Paul does in applying it. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What he ends up saying, uh, don't let anybody judge you. What do you do on Sunday? Don't you know you need to keep holy the Lord's day? Does God want us to keep holy his day? Does he curse us if we don't? Are you sure? Are you sure? You should be sure. There's no curses in the new covenant. There's no if you. It's only I will. I said if you. I said if you. I didn't say what you thought I said. <laughs> okay. I'm glad he left. Mom, did he just? Okay. Um, it talks about um, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So what it means in the context, set your eyes, set your heart on things above, is consider if you are identified with Christ, is God judging you relative to what you do on Sunday? Is he judging Jesus on, on what Jesus does on Sundays? And if you're included in Christ, is he judging you? And if so, somebody who comes to you and points a finger and says, you shouldn't be, what can you say? Eh. 
Off by a covenant. Off by a covenant. It's off by a covenant. That's not the covenant that's in place. What do you mean it's not? That's why he died. That's why he died. That's what happens at the cross. Um, So, the enemies of the cross then, are they irreligious people or religious ones? Religious ones. That's what Paul's talking about. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not irreligious. They are religious people whose glory is in their shame, who miscommunicate, and they stand in a place of spiritual leadership, most likely, indicating this is what God says, but this is not what he's saying. Those are the enemies, which requires you to have a good yes and a good no. A good yes and a good no. When you hear the truth, you say yes. When you hear the truth, not the truth, you say, eh, off by a covenant. Off by a covenant. Because there's enemies who misuse the cross of Christ, Paul issues a similar warning in Galatians. Uh, Again, I'll just read the verse. It's not in your thing. For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Again, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace if you move back into a place where you think that God will accept you if you do the ten things and curse you if you don't. Does God want you to obey the Ten Commandments? Does he want you to obey the Ten Commandments so that you can be blessed by him? What is that? That's off by a covenant. Will God bless you? Because you keep the Ten Commandments? Or because Jesus did? That's it. Because there's a new covenant in place. That's it. And so um, the enemies of the cross use fog-based spiritual influence. Fog-based. You know what FOG stands for? We've talked about it. F-O-G. Fear, obligation, guilt. Fog. And when there's fog, when you hear a lot of fog, you're not going to see the face of God clearly. Fear, obligation, and guilt, when they're used to impel obedience, that is an indication of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The sense there is goading is fog-based spiritual influence when somebody rushes at you to get you moving. You've got to deal with that or else. Or else what? Or else what? God will get you. Will he really? Really? What covenant are we talking about here? When you rush at others to keep them moving, when you rush at yourself to keep yourself moving. There's a difference between, we talked about it, between in goad we trust and in God we trust. You know what goading is, in goad we trust, a goad is a cattle prod. And what they did, to get cattle moving, you'd stick them and you'd kind of move them along. Move along, and that's one way to get people moving. If you goad people, can you get them to do things? Absolutely. Does God goad? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Goad says, don't just sit there, do something. You know what God says? Goad says, don't just sit there, do something. You know what God says? Don't just do something, sit there. Be still. I am God. I know what you think and what you do, but I will never cast you adrift. 
and I will never leave you behind. And I cause all things to work together for good. And what I want you to do is to talk to me. Come to the throne of grace and speak freely for, with me, because if you do that, guess what will grow? Faith and trust. And as faith and trust grow, yeah, that's the way it works. Um, God doesn't rush. He really isn't concerned about your ability to honor him. He really isn't. He's not, he doesn't look at you and, well, this one's okay. Oh, boy, you know, Jesus, let's get over here. Look at this guy here. I mean, man, look at, holy smokes. We got our hands full, you know, so you better clean up really well because that guy's going to be a challenge. And oh, that girl, she's okay, but oh, that guy there, wow. You know what God thinks with respect to you and in transforming you? He's not going to break a sweat. He doesn't need to lift spiritual weights. Look at what it says in in um, Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you know what the luxuries of deity are? You can subject things to yourself. You can command things, and they change. Do you know what's going to happen to you through faith in Christ when you get there? God's going to say, change. Done. Done. God's going to have no problem transforming you. He's that powerful. What happens if you believe that? Maybe you'd stop goading yourself and goading others. That's what Paul, that's who God is. He's that powerful. He's not going to have to roll up his sleeves. He's not going to break a sweat with you. Really isn't. You're simple for him. It's just not going to happen now. You're going to have to wait and be patient, gentle with yourself. Because you know what will happen if you're gentle with yourself? You be gentle with others and you won't goad them and you won't goad yourself. You learn to be gentle. The greater your trust in the ability of God to change you, the more gentle you can afford to be. Do you agree? The harsher you are with yourself and others indicates your trust in God's ability to change is not very high. Again, what do you mean, Mike? I, it, it could be that God's not invested. Again, listen to me. God's not invested in perfecting you right now. He isn't. He's not invested in giving you the power to live a sinless life. He isn't. Then you wouldn't have to trust him for forgiveness, would you? When God wants to change you, Done. Done. But it will happen when this spirit is translated into an immortal body on the far side of the grave. That's why Jesus rose. He didn't just die. The cross was the place that the law was held. But then Jesus rose. And you know what's going to happen? When you die, 
this spirit is going to leave this body behind. And you're going to go up. I think you go up and you're in his presence. But you're not embodied yet. Jesus is going to come back a second time. Here's what's going to happen. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And there's going to be immortal spirits that are in inhabit a mortal body. I'll tell you what. When your spirit is in an immortal body, spirituality will be simple. No fights inside. No inward conflict. No, I'd like to do this, but I have to do that, or I have to do that, but I'd like to do this. Simple. And you know what you're going to say? This is what I always wanted. This is what I waited for. Amen. I'm sorry. Yes, please. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess here's a question. Do you believe it? Say, well, yeah, what difference does that make? That's the good news. And if you believe it, it really does change the way you relate to him. Um, um, Are you eagerly awaiting a Savior? Eagerly awaiting a Savior? It all depends on what you expect him to do. If you understand that when he comes, he's going to finish the job easily. It's all good. It's all good. I'll ask you a hundred years from now. Good? It's all good. It's all good. This is what I waited for. There's no struggle. There's no division now. That's what it's going to be. And if you're waiting for him to do that, are you waiting for that? Waiting for that. I'm waiting for that. I'm I'm dying to get to the place where I'm not at war with myself, pushing myself around, goading myself here and there. And it's something that we'll do. A hundred years from now, you're going to ask me, Mike, what about that? You good? And what am I going to say? I'm good. I'm good. It's important because believing it leads to joy. Unbelieving it, unbelief leads to animosity. You end up fighting and anxiety. You end up being very distracted. A couple of things. Uh, Paul writes when he was on his way to beat up Christians and he was being goaded by people, prodding him, saying, you need to do this. And he ends up coming before Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's... What Paul did, he was furious. He'd go from here to there and he'd beat people up and imprison Christians and should we kill this one? Kill that one. And and he was incensed until he ran into Jesus. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And then he gave the answer. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The reason why Paul was so furious, he was so tired of kicking against goads, people prodding him. You, if you're going to obey God, do it. Are you tired of that? And you know what Paul learned that day? You don't goad. Because Jesus had nothing in his hands. It's hard for you to kick against goads. And you thought, I think the implication is, and you thought I was poking you, but I'm not the one poking you. I don't need to. I don't need to poke you, Paul, because here's the fact. When you come before me, I'm going to not poke you into transformation. I'm just going to go, well, 
That's done. Not hard. And he ended up seeing that. And it was, and you know what ended up happening to Paul? That is a God I can worship. And he, and he spent the rest of his life serving him. Uh, animosity. How can you recognize when our sense of who he is and we may be being goaded? Animosity is one, real, one of the evidences that you're goading when you're insisted, when somebody insists. What does insistence breed? Insist. You know what insistence breeds in me? Resist. Insistence. Resistance. And that's what the problem with forcefulness in religion. It's if you prod somebody, there's an innate sense of resistance. And that's what is animosity. Not just animosity, but anxiety. Look what it says in, it's in your worship of Luke 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. To be distracted, when he says you are distracted, is to be drawn in two different ways two different directions at the same time, to be kind of have cares and responsibilities that are pulling in opposite directions, to be drawn around in mind. So it's about a mind which is pulling in two different directions. That's what distracted. Worried is to have divided thoughts. Upset is when if I was to, to get this place stirred up and everybody, oh, you know, and it's, it's a tumult. It's a... It's when things get really loud. So what Jesus, what Jesus is indicating about Martha is her head was loud. She was, there were these disparate thoughts that were clanging around in her head. One thing, women aren't to sit at the feet of rabbis. That's clanging around in her head. And the other thing that's clanging around in her head, women make dinner. Women make dinner. Women seat at the feet of rabbis, and so these things are rolling around his head. Mary should be helping. There's another thing. And all these things are like whirlwinds inside. Why doesn't Jesus tell her to help? And Mary's head is loud. Anybody ever experienced anything like that? Absolutely. It's, it's, we don't just want one thing. We, our, our thoughts are like a herd of cats sometimes. We, and we just can't, bring order together, but we try. And the problem was not that it really wasn't about serving the meal. Because later on in John 12, um, when Jesus comes over, Martha serves the meal and she doesn't have a problem. Um, do you know what the problem is? We not only get goaded externally, we goad ourselves internally. Women don't sit at the feet of rabbis. Women should make the dinner. Mary should be helping. Jesus, you know, at the end of it, and what ends up happening, that's what is happening in her head. And when James talks about what our problem was, why we fight and quarrel with one another, it's because we're at war internally. 
Anybody understand that? Absolutely we do. And But if we think that we shouldn't be experiencing this, don't, hey, Mike, don't Christians have peace? Is peace the absence of conflict? Or God's presence in the midst of conflict? It's the second, isn't it? Because you know what the peace of God is, is based in? In a hundred years, you will not be tense at all. You're going to be fine in a hundred years. This side of the grave, there will be tension. But guess what? A different day is coming. A different day is coming. A different day is coming. A different day with him. And when you get on the other side, he's going to go, that wasn't so bad, was it? But we have to wait until that time. He is unbelievably powerful. He's going to have no problem with you. When we get irritated, we have to blame somebody. But because we think we shouldn't be wrestling, you know, wrestling happens now. You know what Jesus does? does a couple of things. Martha, Martha. You know what that is? Connection. He wasn't looking at Mary. He wasn't distracted. What Jesus did, he looked at her, and he called her by name. He calls you by name. He can do that. When he thinks about making a promise, it's not spread like buckshot. He looks at you, and he knows your name. Connection. That comes first. Connection. And then he does correct her. He says, you know what? Mary has chosen the better thing. It's, it wasn't Jesus. Jesus doesn't do peace at any price, but he, it was good that Martha told him what was on her mind, and Jesus told her what she needed to hear. You know what, Martha? No, I'm not going to do that. You need to wrestle, but I will connect with you, and I'll let you know the truth. Jesus will tell you, God tells the truth. Connection, then correction. Um, Jesus isn't committed to peace at any price. We talk about enemies of the cross. They're religious. Religious, and there's a sense of impatience that I need to prod you because God needs me to. God needs my help. I need to push you to do things. No, it's not true. Not true. God's plenty powerful. Uh, well, friends of the cross, look what it says. Um, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then listen to the, the imperatives. He tells us what to do. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, three things. Rejoice. Be reasonable. Relieve anxiety through prayer. These are the three imperatives in this letter. Rejoice. Be reasonable. 
Relieve your anxiety through prayer. Rejoice. It says rejoice in the Lord. Always again, it's clear that Paul is not talking about happiness. There are difficult things happening in Philippi, worrisome things. There are enemies of the cross of Christ that are causing problems. It's not paradise. So joy and happiness cannot be the same thing. The joy, as Paul's talking about, is rejoicing in the Lord. And it's the joy in the Lord, it can be had always because it doesn't depend on changing circumstances, but on the one who never changes, and that's him. Rejoice in the Lord always can happen because while circumstances change, he never does. That's why you rejoice in the Lord. Uh, the Lord is the one, again, with the power to transform. This joy exists in the midst of tension. We tend to believe that we, if we're in tension, we did something wrong. No, you're not doing anything wrong. You're just living this side of eternity. This side of eternity, there's tension. That side, there isn't. Normal. If you're in tension... Absolutely. You can have joy in the midst of tension. How? By being confident in the one who never changes. Rejoice. Um, God is invested. He isn't invested with alleviating our tension. Like I said that, but you understand that. God is not invested in giving you a tension-free life. He isn't. It's not his purpose. So if you don't have a tension-free life, it's not because you're doing something wrong. You didn't miss up. God's not going to provide it. Not this side of eternity anyways. But there's a joy that can come in knowing that he walks with you in the midst of this thing. Be Rejoice, and then it says be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. To be reasonable is to find common ground, is to build bridges rather than walls. To build bridges rather than walls. That's what it means to be reasonable. It means to be gently persuasive. It means to convince someone not by pushing them, but by sitting down and finding common ground. When we accept the tension within, you know what we end up doing? We end up developing a relationship with ourselves. Some of us, again, I would dare say all of us, have a natural tendency when we think and do something, or think and have an opinion, we determine if we should have it or not. You know what I mean? I have a feeling, well, I shouldn't have that feeling. Oh, boy, I shouldn't. I'm going to have to get rid of that feeling. Or we have this thought, I shouldn't be thinking that. And we try to push those thoughts down. We try to push them away. How well does that work? How well does that work? How many of you have perfect control over your mind? Let's see it. Come on, Sheila. Raise your hand for that one. <laughs> No, it's, uh, no. You know what I think he wants? I really do. For us to begin to observe ourselves. If, if you're going to be fine a hundred years from now, you know what you can do? You can relax a little bit more when you look at yourself. Maybe have dialogue with yourself. Again, this seems weird. I wonder why I'm thinking that. Rather than throwing a penalty flag at something right away, I shouldn't be thinking that. Try to breathe, breathe. Breathe. Get somebody else to help you breathe. Why am I thinking this? And why am I feeling this? 
dialogue and do it with others. It, we talk to one another. We try to figure things out. If we have the luxury of knowing that we're going to be fine, then we have the luxury of being a little bit gentler with ourselves. I will say, the way Jesus changed is through gentleness. Some of us are very harsh and forceful with ourselves. I want you to listen to me. Change that is rooted in forcefulness might change thoughts, but it doesn't change hearts. And you know what God's judging? He's not judging your, th- your actions, and he won't judge your attitude. You know what he's judging? The deep things, the deep things. And the kind of obedience where you're kind of forced, okay, I'll obey because I have to, that's not going to pass muster. Be in it for the long term. Develop an ability to understand yourself. Um, And then it says, relieve anxiety through prayer. Look what it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a command here, let nothing worry you. And then there's, there's a, don't do this, then there's a command, tell God what your requests are. And there's a promise. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds, and it will allow you to have some type of focus that will allow you to think about the things that he would like you to think about. The peace of God is not a feeling. It's a protective, almost not bubble, but it's a. they used it with regard to a contingent of soldiers, a U, like United Nations peacekeeping mission, which puts a corrective, protective perimeter around to keep things out that don't need to be there. And what it indicates is this. God will give you his peace. It will provide some protection. But for him to do that, you've got to talk with him. Why do you need to pray if God already knows what you need? Why pray? Anybody ever wrestle with that question? We need his peace in order to stay focused on him. He gives us his peace when we give our request to him. You know why you need to pray? Because when you pray and let your request be made known, he gives you peace that will allow a focus for today. And you know what you'll need to do tomorrow? You need to bring your request to him. You know the nice thing? When you bring your request to him, you don't need to go like this. You need, Jesus, I'm glad you're as powerful as you are. And I know one day this is, I'm going to be at peace, but for right now I'm not at peace. There's tension. And I know what you tell me is that I'm supposed to bring everything to you. And so I'm going to do that. There is a little formula I want you to look at. Again, we did a series on this faith lift. I'm just going to go through this very quickly. This really helps me. I go through these steps, and I'm going to encourage you to think about going through them. There's four of them. I look at me, and I think about this. I look at me. You look at me. You talk to me. I talk to you. The four steps, 
And what they end up doing, by the time I talk with him, I have thought about the things I need to think about. Sometimes when we talk to God, we are just worrying out loud. We really haven't taken the time to think of who we're talking to. And if you just come into his presence and spout without thinking about whose presence, it's not going to be very helpful. So that's why there's a couple of things. Number one, I look at me. What that means, you observe yourself and you tell him what you see. You know what, God, I'm, I feel anxious and I feel afraid. And what you're doing, you're observing. You're not judging. You're not throwing penalty flags. You're just being honest with him. I feel great or I don't feel great. I feel both great and not great. You look at you. And what we do, we develop an ability to observe ourselves and tell him about it. It's a relationship. I look at me. You got that? That's the first place. What we tend to do is we tend to take parts of ourselves that shouldn't be there and, oh, no, no, that's not part of me. Excuse me. Oh, where did that come from? <laughs> he already sees it. And if he already sees it and he sympathizes with it, why are you ashamed to talk with him about something that he already knows? He already knows it. He knows you by name. Tell him about what's going on. Don't play games with him. I look at me, and you look at me. You know what? I think about these. I think you see me. I think about Jesus in this. Jesus, you see me, and you know what it's like for me to be me. I get pulled in there, and you see all that, and you this is just slays me. You sympathize with me. You know what it's like to feel some of the things I feel. When I start to think about that and something starts to quiet down in me, I feel less alone. You see me, you sympathize, you still gently with me. If you could see the way God looks when he, you reveal yourself to him, he's not scared. He's not concerned. God doesn't bite his nails when he looks at you. He's direct, compassionate not frightened. So you, I, I look at me, you look at me, you speak to me. And this comes after you thought about this, and you know what God says to you? Jay did it. Put down the cell phone. Put down the list. Put away the to-do list. I want you to look at me, he says. I think this is what he says to you. I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. And on the earth, you can count on it. I will never leave you. Listen. I will never cast you adrift. That's what leave means. It means to untie a boat. I will never cast you adrift. I will never forsake you. You know, forsake means it's the thing that a Marine would never do. Semper Fi, I will never leave you on the field of battle. I will never leave you behind. And I will cause all things to work together for good. I look at me. Boy, I got this and that. You look at me. You see me. You sympathize. You deal gently with me. I start to calm down. You speak to me and you say, I've got you. 
I'm going to be exalted in the nation of the earth. I will never cast you adrift. I will never leave you behind. And I will cause good things to happen. And the reason why you do all that is to eliminate tension? No, to endure it. Because now you can express yourself to him. But now you're not worrying out loud. Having done those first three things, I look at me. You look at me. You talk to me. Now I can talk to you. But I'm talking to God. And I'm bringing all of myself in. And you know what I end up doing? Expressing, God, I'm frightened about this and that. And I go away. You know what ends up happening? I don't feel so alone. He's with me. And that allows me to get through today. I have enough strength for today. You know what happens tomorrow? Because this is a good thing to do. It's comforting. And I think it's real. Faithless, I encourage you. Yeah. Anyways, worship team, come on up. Surprised by Joe, animosity and anxiety are issues, and that's he asks us to come to the throne of grace. He tells us to talk with him. And we've looked at four things to do when you do so. Look at you, see him looking at you, see him talking to you, and then you talk to him. And when you do it, the peace of God will pass us all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Great words. Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us to rejoice. And rejoicing is a doorway into being reasonable with ourselves and others. And those, both of those feel like they, they align the foundation of receiving something from you that allows us to be joyful and to be reasonable. And that's your peace. Peace comes as we come before you, honestly, listening to what you say, thinking about how you see us, and then speaking to you as we give you our thanksgiving and requests. Your peace, which surpasses understanding, erects a protective perimeter, allows us to live within the confines, even with intention, where we can trust you. Would you teach us about that? That's not an overnight lesson. It's a progressive. It happens slowly, but it's deep. Pray that you would do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen.